0: On this episode of Gridlock Break, House Problem Solvers Caucus co-chairs Josh Gottheimer and Tom Reed discuss the economic relief measures in the recently passed CARES Act, as well as plans for subsequent federal support for businesses and individuals hit by the coronavirus. They also look ahead for what it will take to reopen the economy and give people the confidence to get back to work. Let's listen in. Tom,
1: welcome. And uh, the record will show that you were here uh, much before Josh. Uh, he's lagging behind you once again, uh, but uh, we're not surprised at that. Anyway, uh, not much I can say by way of introduction that uh, I haven't already said about the two of you and the Problem Solvers Caucus. And everybody on here knows and believes you, you've really uh, uh, given us a basis in fact for a hope about the system. and. Uh, again, in some ways, never more than before this terrible uh, crisis, because you've been meeting with each other regularly, you're coming up with ideas, your column in the uh, USA Today on Friday was excellent substantively, but honestly, <clears throat> to me, what was really uh, more important, even than your good ideas, uh, was the fact that you and Josh and the whole Problem Solvers focus were working together uh, overall, I would say, um, I hate to quote myself, but I, I said a while ago, uh, no genius in this, that uh, the, the politics in Washington, governance had become so partisan that I feared it would take a crisis or a catastrophe to bring us uh, together across party lines. We are we're in a crisis, maybe in some ways a catastrophe. And uh, people have come together across party lines overall, and yet um, uh, they're still just on, on the edge of every now and now then you know, seeming to break out, as you know. So you, you people have really been steady and wonderful. I thank you for it. And I want to turn it over to you and when Josh gets here, uh, if you're willing, you can uh, invite him into the conversation. Of
2: course, we will. Well, I, Senator- Thank you, Joe, for those kind words. And thank you to No Labels and to everyone uh, out there on this call. Um, And to to Joe's point, uh, the Problem Solvers Caucus has been uh, trying to get ahead of this. Uh, We are having uh, significant conversations on a regular basis, uh, both individually and as a caucus. We just had an hour-long call today with Steve Scalise on our side, the 50 members of the caucus, exchanging ideas. How do we continue to function as a legitimate uh, government operation. There's a serious concern by members how to even uh, address that issue of how we vote, how we, how we debate the issues of the day. And uh, I, I think up to this point in time, there has been a, a tremendous amount of reaching across the aisle coming together in a bipartisan basis and recognize the moment for what it is. And that is that we need to come together as Americans. And so I hope that continues as we go into phase four, but we are learning a lot each and every day from each other as well as from these calls. And the input from the leaders on the front line is very helpful for us to be a voice to that leadership, to the rooms that we're all plugged into, be it from the White House directly to the president, uh, to our local leaders all the way back here. It's just very helpful to have that counsel and that input. And what you saw in the USA Today uh, was just an example of that, of us kind of working through the issues, kind of where we see what's over the horizon, and how we can be a voice to some sort of reasonableness to deal with this crisis in a thoughtful, proactive way. So we're going to continue to do that. And um, and right now it's about getting through the health crisis, but at the same time, recognizing the economic crisis is going off. And how do we get to the point where the country is safe enough to come back uh, uh, alive, put people back to work and address this economic crisis that the vapor lock of twenty two trillion dollars of U.S. economy is causing. Uh, that we all are familiar with, especially on this call. So I can just tell you, it's been amazing. I was on one of your calls and I apologize for having left the other day in the middle of it, but you know, we just have some fires go off where personal protection equipment, ventilators, you never know what you're going to have to deal with next in order. I just got up the phone from our New York state farm bureau president, because uh, in the agricultural community, there's a lot of anxiety and fear. So this is, this is no industry is untouched. No segment of our a nation is at risk, and us working together is how we're going to get through this. So I appreciate being with you, and I appreciate, most importantly, what you guys started when we started this vision of no labels, problem solvers, caucus. Um, we we have the muscle memory now and the relationships to have conversations that otherwise don't occur in Washington, D.C., and I will tell you, our leadership, if it gives you any indication, Steve Scalise given us an hour of his time today are tapping into us to see what's doable in in regards to what we can put together as a a group of members from each side of the aisle. So with that, I will wait for Josh, but thank you so much, Joe, for your leadership and your counsel.
1: Thanks, Tom. Uh, Great uh, beginning and and very uh, hopeful. So uh, the floor is open. Uh, Unmute yourself or, or wave your hands and Liz will unmute you. Questions for
3: Tom? Hi, this is Michael Small I'm from Denver. Hi, Tom. Do you think this time go um, do you think this go around um, the House will actually put forward legislation or are we going to leave it to the Senate to introduce it?
2: So uh, it's yet to be determined. I, I think um, what everyone is kind of uh, putting their hat in the ring is uh, uh, one, how do we continue to function? I think that's the first question that we will answer here really quickly. I mean, it's a fundamental question. Uh, are we going to use technology? Or are we going to have to go back as a body physically? And obviously, you all know the public health risk and the orders and everything in the technology uh, that we'll have barriers to overcome in order to do it. So that would be the first question I would keep an eye on it. Uh, but I do believe, you know, the House is going to be much more active. The Senate's also going to be watching. And there was a good discussion over the last couple of days of uh, 3.5, if you would, we're burning through the 350 billion dollars for example on the paycheck protection program there may be something to be able to do there in regards to unanimous consent again to kind of backfill what's working and give the uh, authority and the legislative approval to what needs to happen on that front but any type of substantive package like a phase four is kind of what we're colloquially calling it um, that's probably going to take both the house and senate putting markers down uh, as to what they want to see in that package. So I don't see Senate going first. I don't see the House going first. I see both sides putting something on the table uh, to see where they can uh, follow this together in a legislative fashion about 60 days out thereabouts. My best guess.
1: Yeah. Hey, Tom, I'll, I'll ask you this sure. question. Um, to say the obvious, I suppose, the, the uh, economic questions really depend, in this case, on the public health realities. And uh, witness the market today, based on uh, some hope that um, that there's a, the peak is being hit or has been hit already in Spain or Italy, or whatever. So a lot of this uh, depends on on the uh, investments that Congress made um, and, and that the private sector are making in first discovering um, therapeutics, treatment, uh, medicine, medication uh, for people who have the virus, and then, of course, longer term vaccine but about uh, I was on the meeting like this this morning on the board of, of a company that I serve on and you know that as the CEO said it all depends on on uh, the health numbers of uh, they happen to be in the hotel business so they're correct they're very directly dependent but once uh, once the uh, health numbers improve then uh, business will improve I'm just uh, uh, curious to if you have any how do you feel about what uh, what is happening, both that Congress authorized and that the private sector is up to, in trying to find first a uh, therapeutic uh, treatment uh, and then uh, what the prospects are for a vaccine? Because the sooner all that happens, the better the economy will be. Yeah, so I think your
2: your your comments are, are well taken, you know, and that's uh, gauging the healthcare crisis and. Uh, monitoring where that goes and it's natural. Mother Nature's taking its course. All the information shows us that the virus appears to be going down that same traditional course that Mother Nature takes these viruses down. And so not only the treatment, I would add another wrinkle to it. Not only the treatment and the vaccine status are going to be critical to this, it's also going to be that serological testing capability uh, to give people comfort. Not only can we test for the virus, but what do we know about the population? And so there's a lot of folks, Andy Bursky on this, uh, has been on this issue for a couple of weeks now, but that's gonna be a critical piece so that people have the confidence in knowing where the virus is at and what the virus is doing and the, and the status of the population. Because one thing that we're, uh, the Problem Solvers Caucus and members who are like trying to think where the puck is going, you know, September, October, and Scott Gottlieb spent an hour with us as the Problem Solvers Caucus on Friday, I think it was. And he has a pretty good analysis. You look at the Wall Street Journal and AEI report that he put forward Is looking at September and October. So as the virus goes down that course, how are we learning today to be able to have the surge capacity to deal with it? How do we maintain our base capacity in our healthcare system to deal with it? And so you're you're gonna wanna be, you know, looking at that horizon too, as to how best to situate the country from a healthcare stability perspective today, but also September, October, because a lot of us are very concerned that if we get to September, October and we have these kind of rolling quarantines again then that would be starting and stopping the u.s economy in this way would be i think devastating so we gotta we gotta figure out a way to gauge that quick uh, better in my opinion um, i agree well said
4: hey tom it's andy Gottesman. how are you
2: yeah andy good to see you so my only uh, comment would be
4: next time around as much as you guys can focus on the very smallest businesses i think is going to be important you know not everybody's got a big four accounting firm or a super regional accounting firm that's filling out their SBA application, getting all their forms together and taking them through this process with a serious bank that knows how to do this every day. And um, it's those very small businesses with revenues like less than half a million dollars a year or a million dollars a year that I think are kind of getting shut out right now. So to whatever extent they can be looked after in the next round. I mean, I think some of them are going to get through this round, but I I think a lot of them are going to throw up their hands and give up because it's it's just too complicated for them. And those are the people for the next one.
2: I I so appreciate that uh, feedback because that's another um, area that I'm really concerned about is the businesses that don't come back, the smaller ones, the thousand uh, middle of the road position, because that's going to be a huge supply chain issue. That's going to be a logistical problem. And and where these holes in the economy are gonna be and and necessary to be plugged. Um, So any ideas on how best to address those small businesses, uh, right now is the time, please send them over uh, as we put together, just so you know, the Problem Solvers Caucus is building out that kind of turning the lights on proposal. Right. proposal is, uh, you know, what are some ideas to stabilize the economy in regards to these small business owners? So, and other things, send them over if you could. Or oh, right now, that would be great.
5: Uh, hi, Tom. This is Jerry Harmon. Yeah, we work with a lot of those small businesses. We happen to be a SBIC, um, so we're now investing in them. But we're trying to help ones that we're not invested in. And there's a great fear because a lot of the banks are only dealing with their existing customer base and prioritizing them, which tends to be the bigger loans and so forth. And a lot of these smaller businesses are shut out just from pure access to on the on the queue. Yeah. No, they're gonna be um, so that's something to be considered. The other things, there's still a lot of truly small businesses that have over 500 employees, which puts them out of the opportunity for the PPP loans, and they have a lot of people that are having to lay off, and yet they're not big businesses. And the sooner we can get you know, capital or a program for those 500 to 1,000 employees or something along those lines, even if it's just the same program, just up the number to 1,000. Okay. You know, that will capture a lot of them not without having to create a whole new, you know, process. Um, just a suggestion.
2: Yeah, no, that's in And I think, you know, talking to other members, I, I get the sense that something like that could be something we could do like in a 3.5 package in the sense of the underlying system has already been authorized. It's already been approved. It's already been vetted. So it's expanding, not only reauthorizing more money, but expanding it to additional, Entities. That's good. Um,
6: So it's interesting because I'm in that category um, that she's talking about. Thank you very much for that, Jerry. Um, (laughs) uh, And and uh, so we are we are not we are just above we are above the the line for the PPP um, and uh, employ a thousand people give or take. and, uh, you know, our priorities, like everybody else is, a life first, livelihood second. Uh, so we're, we're, we're trying very hard to keep our people first safe, second employed. Um, that is an issue which varies widely from place to place around the country. Uh, it's correlated pretty much to the intensity of the disease, where it is and what the problems are. But uh, we we are trying very hard to keep a lot of people employed. The ability of the bank to back us is 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 key. Uh, it, it will be key to our decision making about uh, furloughing and terminating people or keeping them. Um, that relates to two things. One, it relates to people keeping their paycheck today, and two. It, re, it relates to the the ability of the business enterprise to serve the the market and the and the society afterwards its capacity as an organized group to produce the the economic good that it does is based upon keeping the organization intact this is a 100-year-old company by the way and its its survival is is in question so um, uh, thank you very much, Jerry, for allowing me to, uh, to go on to that, uh, uh, down that tangent. Um, could I switch uh, from that for one second, uh, Tom? Um, and I, I, this is uh, stimulated by the article that uh, you and Josh published uh, in USA Today the other day. Um and I, I wrote back uh an email comment about it uh which you probably haven't seen but the uh, the effort was so that you could get so that it might become a part of this conversation. Um as I'm sure you appreciate um the the virus doesn't know any boundaries science um physics chemistry biology they're not political They don't care what party you belong to. They don't care about borders or boundaries. I think it's very important as we think about legislation going forward that we not get into a bunker uh, frame of mind um, where um, it's us against them. The world is connected. We must remember that. We will forget it at our peril. End of speech.
2: Well, very well said. Um, that is some Tom, I'm here to so you now. Oh, thank you. okay. Thanks. Josh is here. So maybe Josh, I'll just, uh, respond to that and then turn it over to you real quick. Um, you know, this is a conversation I've been having across the spectrum. Now, mother nature threw us this curveball. There's no evil person behind this, no evil political party behind this. No one's at fault. This is something where, uh, mother nature just, uh, did what mother nature does every, every once in a while. And so responding to it means that that's how we have to come together and respond to it. It's, uh, Human beings, and as uh, as people uh, who are dealing with this uh, curveball, and um, the the one question I would, and so when I we, you won't hear us talking about ballots. You won't hear us talking about big bad. I, I was I was on with hospital providers. I just had a, a conference call with private health insurers, and um, everybody's in this together. Everybody's anxious. Everybody is having cash flow, liquidity concerns, business models are thrown out the door, and um, and rightfully so. So I, I appreciate that feedback but one thing I was going to ask about the thousand uh, uh, the employee retention tax credit because it sounds like the business that uh, you're referring to there you know you, the 100 year uh, business uh, probably had some revenue loss of that 50 percent threshold or is subject to some type of non-essential closure order and if that's the case how do if people have any sense of how that employee tax retention credit that five That's out to be about $5,000 per employee. Is anybody seeing any value in that or are people just not aware that it's there? Or is there something wrong with that program that is not making it as readily available or aware to folks as an assistance uh, mechanism uh, in the CARES Act that people are, I know they're focusing on the PPP, but I just wanted to kind of get a sense of where that tax credit was going.
6: Sad to say, it has not been at the forefront of our conversation within our enterprise. <clears throat> so <clears throat> I can't give you an intelligent response. It doesn't seem to have been top of the uh, top of the agenda. I'd say I'd say uh, there's some confusion as to whether one can apply for both programs or not.
2: Um, you can't double dip. Uh, what you can take advantage is that 6.2 percent uh, deferral in your payroll employer tax um, uh, payments and that employee retention tax credit but you can't take advantage of the employee retention tax credit and the PPP or you can't and you can't take advantage of the deferral and the PPP. but obviously if you don't take advantage of the PPP the loan forgiveness program, the PPP program and the employee tax retention obviously, Anybody can take advantage of the, uh, uh, six, uh, the the deferral of the payroll
7: tax. I think, uh, Tom, this is Maxine Clark from St. Louis, and I'm in the retail business. I'm on the board of two large retail companies, and most of those companies had to furlough people before the bill even came to pass because the people had to be able to take their unemployment and you can't pay them, there are just too many of them, thousands of employees to carry that payroll. So I think the bill didn't come fast enough for people to really make that evaluation. And even still, hopefully, we'll go back to work before maybe some of the payments are even made to people because uh, people are having difficulty, companies are having difficulty filing um, the PPP and our employees uh, filing the unemployment locally uh, across the country. We're hearing our employees calling and saying, we can't get through the system's broken. The, you know, the, there's a waiting list. So mm-hmm. those are all, you know, it's not working on either side.
2: And Maxine, just so we're clear on that, because maybe this is an opportunity. I'm just throwing it out there for uh, discussion uh, because we're seeing that unemployment logjam, jam and we made the bill retroactive to allow businesses recognizing they made decisions. They didn't know phase three, of the CARES Act was coming through. So if you go back on the loan forgiveness program, that goes back to a February 15th retroactive period. And then on the employee tax retention uh, credit, it's March 13th. So you can do kind of a uh, a reconsideration. And so if your employees are there, maybe that's something to consider and getting those people back on the
7: payroll. I I think our teams are working on that. It's very complicated because once you've put people into that system and told them all this, you've got to communicate with thousands of people again. So you want to make sure that you know what you're communicating before you communicate it, because you could send people into a tizzy, and I think we're all hopeful that this is taking a turn for the better, but it is complicated, and and it, um, you have a lot of hourly workers who don't, just like somebody said earlier about small companies, hourly workers who've never applied for unemployment, they have always been working. Um, So it's kind of a, uh, you know, people are thrown into a sort of a turmoil when they're probably not at their, their sanest anyway. Uh, just just scared. So we're trying to help and I think that's um, This it'll it'll probably ease up a little bit this week after people are not on the on the systems um, as long But it has been complicated and confusing for companies that had to make quick decisions And weren't sure what the decision was gonna be made by the government. Yeah,
2: no that's, oh, that's, that's, and Josh, I'm, I'm sorry
4: Oh Sorry, Tom Josh. I want this is Omar. I wanted to offer a quick perspective. Please yeah. can hear me. Sure. Yeah. So, Go ahead. Um, so we uh, we own about over 100 Planet Fitness health clubs uh, throughout the country, and obviously we're mandated to close. Uh, mm-hmm. Let me offer three things. I guess first, um, in the part of the bill that you just discussed, I think it doesn't necessarily address the most acute issue of most business owners, which is liquidity, right? How do I get cash today? A tax credit is great. It doesn't help me stay alive today. The second thing is, um, in order for anybody to contribute to this problem, we got to have some sense as to how long is it gonna last. So we're negotiating with landlords, lenders, a bunch of people that have a vested interest in our long-term success, including employees, many of which we had to furlough, but it's hard to assess how long it's gonna last. And I think we talked about that earlier when Senator uh, Joe Lieberman mentioned, you know, we have to think through how we going to live with this virus, right? How do we measure our healthcare capacity, our testing capacity, our ability to trace, um, PPP? You know, when we get back out there, we're not going to have a vaccine. So are there ways to measure where we are along that curve so that when people can go out, we can do maybe more like Singapore or other parts of Asia that have been able to live with this virus but still not you know, either kill their economy, or the thing that I had the greatest fear of, we open up, but people are afraid to come into a health club, despite it yeah. having great benefits to them, but they're scared, or they open up, they think everything's fine. And we have a second wave. And I don't think our company, let alone the economy can afford to kind of start and stop awesome. like that. So awesome. I'm really want to think through how can we create at least a mechanism by which business leaders Allocators of capital, other people can monitor how are we doing and how long might this last, so that we can make some sort of forecasting with confidence. The last thing I'll say is maybe one idea as we think about solving the liquidity problem, which is tied to the health care infrastructure and the time how long it takes. But I know there's been a lot of discussion around the um, uh, maybe uh, uh, enterprise. Um, the uh, insurance business interruption insurance Mm -hmm. and obviously no one had business interruption insurance for COVID-19 because it wasn't even thought of to be a potential problem but all the profits that were lost through that time period um, if there was a way to kind of refund that for some period of time that might inject some real liquidity into the system so that it's not necessarily a loan but then I could go to my lender and say, this is the amount of profit I would have made, right? Count this as profit. We can adjust some things. That gives them liquidity. It gives landlords liquidity, et cetera. But, you know, some sort of mechanism like that may be helpful. The question is, I'm sure no insurance company is going to do it without some sort of federal backstop. So that's exactly. all I had to share. Yeah. I'm curious are comments. So yeah.
8: um, you want me to grab that one time?
2: Well, just on the, the, uh, uh, just yeah, so on. I, I, sorry. Josh, maybe just on the employee uh, retention tax credit, remember we talked, that's an advanceable refundable tax credit. So that, is, that could be a direct infusion of cash from the treasury um, on your first filing where they actually electronically distribute money back to you. I just okay. I put that on your so, radar. I Your point that
8: you're making, see, you're making a lot of uh, very uh, salient points. And so let me just dissect a couple of them. I think you're, and-, and I think would, is somebody who spent most of his career before going to Congress in the private sector. I'd say that the the uncertainty piece is is always a killer right because that's what is, is very it's very difficult to manage around uncertainty. and so um, and of course, given of what's going on in the country right now with the virus there's there there's a huge swath of uncertainty that we're that none of us have a crystal ball on so that makes it very difficult. The reason I was a few minutes late we were on a call our democratic caucus on a call with Speaker Pelosi, and part of what we're focusing on, of course, is is this next phase, and about the about extending um, a the unemployment piece of this, but b uh, expanding the uh, PPP program so that there's more cash there because right now it seems that demand is outstripping supply, or it appears that it will. Um, so, what programs do we need, and where do we need to correct and make and make certain tweaks where we've found? Uh, sort of unintended consequences for some of our from the the first bill or gaps that we um, Didn't address in the first bill because it was done. So it was obviously done quickly to respond to the emergency But 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 there's issues that we can tweak Um, um, uh, And so, you know, one of the things I am concerned about just like you are which is we reopen society say call it June 1st we reopen society or whatever the date is that we reopen society which, in common, I wrote about this in our op-ed. It may be in phases. It may be by industry. It may not be a one-size-fits-all answer. But but, what? How is behavior going to change, right? Because of fear, as you say, of fear of what may, what else might be coming. So, if the virus comes back in in the fall, and obviously we don't have a vaccine yet, and we may not have all the palliative treatments, we may be much better off in terms of our testing capabilities and. And tracking capabilities and who actually has um, you know, who has the antibodies and who doesn't. So certain things we may be on top of, but people might change their behavior. They might not go to, you know, I, I usually go to the gym every day. Am I might not gonna go to the gym every day? By the way, I've been to your clubs, they're excellent. You know, what 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 am I not What am I gonna do? Am I not gonna go to a movie? Well, you know, how's my behavior gonna change? That part can still ripple and ripple through the economy. And so there, there will be probably an uncertainty hangover. Um, and and I do think that's going to affect things and we have to think about that as that continues to affect affect our society Even when we reopen now in terms of the insurance question, which I think you're spot-on to ask about uh, Many of us have talked about that you might imagine a lot of our small businesses immediately raised Well, this, you know, this seems like business interruption, but it's not covered I think the government's gonna to have to develop and many of us are on the same page about this in a bipartisan way some sort of um, either a, a tria, you know terrorist insurance uh, model or, or a flood insurance model where the government backstops it in some way because the carriers aren't going to be able to underwrite it or at least in an affordable way for customers so I, I think we're gonna to have to figure that out and 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 I'm on the financial services committee we're already working on that um, because we're gonna we were going to have to be prepared for the, for that and and uh, prepare for that risk um, so you're right to, to be concerned about the timeline. I'm not sure any of us have an exact, we, you know, we don't have an exact timeline. And you're right to say there's certain, there's a going to be a lot of uncertainty. Our hope is that we take care of the pieces that we can infuse more certainty around, um, which includes right the testing piece and the supply chain piece, which Tom and I have talked about a lot, and PPE for our protective gear for for our, um, our first our first responders and our healthcare frontline workers. So there are things we can bring uncertainty to, but there's, of course, continue to be things that we just don't have an answer to.
4: And just a follow-up there, because I, I think that's super helpful. I guess in the private sector, we're used to measuring the controllables, right? And so there are, like you said, a handful of things that we can control and getting some sense of this is what we think we can do over some time period and then measuring, are we tracking to that or not? That sort of visibility, for example, would be extraordinarily helpful for people. I don't have that right now. Maybe others do. But is there a way we can communicate or get that type of information out there so that people know what is the testing infrastructure? What's the plan for the testing infrastructure? What's the pp e You know, what are the
8: milestones we're going to hit so that we can kind of yeah, see where we're and, at? And that's exactly what Tom and I are uh, and the Problems Arms Caucus. It's exactly what we're working on of what we'd like to see that look like. Um, uh, and the things we believe need to be in place. And, and uh, you know, and I I'm hopeful that the executive branch is working on exactly that as well as their parallel a parallel structure going on in terms of what they'd like to see, because we're we are going to need and we need to have benchmarks for reopening and bunch benchmarks for success along the way here. Even as we open or limited open or however we approach these phases, and I think we have to think about it in phases because you can't wait for the last, you know, for the last case. We're going to have to decide; it's going to have to reopen at some point. But we have to decide what those benchmarks look like, and we're working on exactly that right now. It's what Tom and I are leading an effort on.
9: So um, one question I have, and this is uh, this is Steve Kaplan, um, and I I own the professional soccer team in in Washington D.C. Yeah, so we may be one of the last ones back. Um, But what I hear from a number of business leaders um, who are in both my industry and other entertainment industries is even when people start to come back, how do they know they're safe? And that applies to health clubs. It applies to movie theaters. It applies to sports arenas. And one of the things that's been talked about is a national registry, serology registry, so that we start to know who who within our population have antibodies, who don't. Testing is going to improve. Uh, we're probably, you know, some weeks, maybe a month away from having, uh, you know, five to ten minute accurate test. To what extent do we need to think about our health, our health privacy laws, so that we can, you know, so that we can think about a bipartisan effort, so that we can both protect people's privacy, certainly against discrimination, uh, but also make uh, that information available to employees. Um, Owners of businesses, so that they can ensure that their places of businesses are safe.
8: Tommy, want me to go? Or you got that one. I, uh, I guess I'll. I guess I'll go. Uh, Tom, is it okay? Yeah, go ahead, Josh. Okay, thanks, Senator. Um, it's, you're, it's a very shrewd question, exactly the debate that we're that we're uh, having right now, uh, as you uh, as you'd imagine um uh because many of us think you we, were we, if if it's true and as you know the scientists haven't exactly they're not they're they have not 100 uh decided that if you have have had the test or have the antibiotic and, and tested for this and have the um on the antibodies that you're in the clear there may be in fact i was talking to uh uh someone this morning who said there might in fact be three different types of antibodies and some might give you a clear pass for six months. That might give you a clear pass forever. Um, it's, you know, we don't have the answers to that yet, but we do know that it's going to be, a that information is likely to be essential. So how do we start organizing that? And do we treat it as if when, you know, we have to register before your kids go to school, that if they've had all their shots and had their measles test? Is that how we should look at that? Which is information, of course, that we need to have for the public health of other people. Um, and we may not post it on a website, but you have to submit a form. And so your employer knows or your, or your your school knows that you've been the, your, that you've been cleared. I, you know we're going to have to figure this out because it is going to be essential. And it may turn out that when we think of reopening the world, it may be that certain folks go back to work sooner than other folks, or that we say if you're of a certain age or a certain risk category, you should work from home longer, and that other people go to work first. But I I believe you're right that we're going to have to figure out some sort of database here and some way to do that so that you're not discriminated against, um, but that it's actually useful to protecting your your workforce and getting people back to work.
10: Thank you. Is any Josh, Josh and Tom, it's uh, Andrew Brickman. Tom, I, I have a business in um, upstate New York. It's a small business. One of the things I think that there's been a lot of good discussion about that we need to have more discussion on um, at the congressional level is, uh, you know, there's a, a good push to get Back to full employment at these businesses and protect employee bases, which I think is a wonderful thing That being said, I think a lot of employers are unsure of the demand curve and how that meets with the supply curve And you know syncing those up. I I don't know that every business is going to need full employment by June 30th as a for instance so, um, I, I don't have an answer to my own question, but just as you're debating these things, I think we have to take into account that it's, you know, all these businesses aren't going to come back to full employment right away. And there is probably going to be a testing period where people are, you know, so to speak, feeling their way as to how much employment they need and how to reignite those businesses.
8: Tom, do you want to grab that since you're, uh, it's an upstate New York issue? He might've, he might've had to hop. I'm yeah, sorry. I, I think he's uh, gone uh, there.
2: But uh, I'll come back to it, Josh.
8: Okay. okay I'll, I'll, Tom, I'll, I'll handle it. Tom, um, I'll handle it. I'm just glad that you have a mobile phone there. I was worried about you and your technology mm-hmm. there in Upstate New York. Um, uh, Tom and I have spent probably uh, 20 hours a uh, week together, and way too much time these days on the phone talking to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and um, uh, I'll, I'll say, you know, to answer your question. You know, I think we're going to have to, you're exactly right, that we're going to have to think about uh, how we turn the lights back on in a very careful way. Because I think well, the point you're making, which, uh, you know, I, I think should be repeated over and over again, is just because we do go back to business, it doesn't mean that we're, everyone's going to start hiring everyone right away. There's going to be grand uncertainty um, and people are going to want to put their foot in the water uh, businesses your owners are going to want rightfully put their foot in the water to see how everyone else is reacting and responding and how things come back online which means we're going to really as a from a, a, a public sector perspective and from a governing perspective we're gonna really have to think this one through because um, I, I you know and, and how how long we we help on the front on the worker front because people are going to be out of work and a lot of people who have who are either being furloughed now or laid off are, are it's going to take a long time to get them back into the workforce. I don't I think some there's some assumption that we'll just flip a switch and everyone will just go right back, back to work, but even if people are as I said I spoke to somebody this morning who uh, you know is concerned about people paying rent and I saw something on CNBC this morning that there was someone one of the landlords said they received 80, 88% of their rent last month, but what I'm worried about is the next month. And um, and the month after that, and when the cash runs out, or people decide to defer paying their rents or paying their mortgages on the residential side, it's going to be tough for people to catch up. And they're going to eventually have to pay what they're not paying today, unless we forgive people's rents and pay all the landlords off ourselves. But eventually, people are going to have to pay these dollars. So that's going to be another. Um, uh, it's going to be another uh, you know debt on their back. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I, I think there's a lot of considerations here that make this much more complicated than just, okay, tomorrow everyone's going back to work.
11: I'd really like to respond to that, if it's possible. Um, I don't know whether I'm not being heard. Yes, yes we, we can hear you.
3: Please. All right.
11: What it, one of the things that they do in a car race when there's a massive wreck is they throw out a yellow flag and everybody just sort of pauses. And in effect, our economy's just gone through a massive wreck, and we have to figure out a way to pause this. The easiest way to pause this is to halt all capital payments. If we're not paying interest on capital, and we're not repaying capital, we don't have to charge rent, and we can use the cash that our businesses have to pay the consumables to pay for our employees. Our employees can use their cash to pay for their food if they're not paying for the rent. And if we take all those loans that are there, and instead of of charging them interest all through this period, we just push those loans out for three months. Everyone collects their money over time, but no one makes any money during this time. We're all losing. So for capital to continue to earn revenue when all the human capital can't earn revenue, creates a real imbalance in the whole system. My business has 600 employees. We have over 40,000 loans. Most of our consumers are not gonna be able to pay us for a long period of time because we've had to shut our doors. Uh, By shutting our doors, that immediately put us in default on all of our loans. And there's no protection for us on our loans there's no protection for our consumers on their late charges and all the different things that are happening there. If there was some some government issued law or something that would cause all this interest to stop for a short period of time and let everybody just pause and slide, there'd be a chance for all of us to come out whole. Well, um, Lee, I've, I've you know I, th- I
8: think that's a very a uh, uh, good idea that a lot of i've heard from a lot of people the concern and the pushback i've heard on that is because n- not everybody is you know goes to their you be- know not every property is owned by the bank and so that you know one one thing if i didn't pay my rent and then the bank uh and then my landlord didn't pay his or her rent to the bank and so forth it would work but the problem is that because of the the, the you know the bond market and the way it works most a lot of these properties are not owned by banks anymore they cut them up and sell them off and and other people own that debt so there's no one for them to turn around to and say i'm not going to make my payment this month i got to pay and that's where the system my understanding is kind of fell apart falls apart in that change you're you're mutedly.
12: Hey, hey, Josh Gottheimer, uh, it's, Rob, yeah. it's Rob Stavis. I mean, I'll pick up on that same thing. I think you're exactly right. We're seeing that all over. Um, I think more than ever, we see all kinds of American business people willing to be accommodating and cooperative. Um, but that idea of how do you create the grand bargain where everyone's contributing, not even precisely the right amount, but an approximate right amount and get everyone to nod yes at the same time seems to be the hardest part of reaching accommodations, and there's a real
8: fear that that's what's going to seize up the gears of the economy. And Rob, do you think the economy are you uh, bullish on the fa- on, the, on the fact that you know listen caseloads are going down and we'll be okay, or do you think this is going to be systemic and last?
12: I'm, I mean, look, I'm here in New York, so it's it's hard, I think, not to be bearish. I find myself bearish. When I talk to individual business leaders, I'm just struck by how many feel like uh, their best case is to get open with something less than they used to have. You know, no one's I'm just not talking to anyone who's talking about going back to the old world. So I worry that one, we're we're still too far from this testing regime to have any idea when can I design a reopening with testing? Like, I just don't even know when that is. And then I worry that everyone who wants to reopen their business wants to reopen it in a much more modest way than they closed
3: it. Uh, th- this is Bob Zadig. Hey, Bob. Hi, uh, good afternoon. Uh, I'm here in, a, in California. Uh, I'm a, a lender. I'm a practicing attorney. My practice is lending to small and medium-sized business. I also have a lending company. I lend to small and medium-sized business. I'm kind of plugged in. Uh, to what's going on in my little tiny anecdotal world. And two observations, if I may. First of all, there was a lot of what the country did in growth. One decision for the whole country, it seems, was made, driven by flattening the curve. Flattening the curve was itself not a policy. It, It was in fact, the wrong policy, but it was a policy required by the fact that if we didn't flatten the curve, the consequence would be twofold, one bad and one good. The bad would be we don't have enough hospital beds. It was driven by the practical, not by the medical. The The good part of not flattening the curve is that the problem disappears much faster. And therefore, the adverse effects on the economy are shorter. And this talk about letting the economy go until June and then start it up, it's like imagining closing down a nuclear reactor and then starting it up. You don't look for the on switch, which is a big red button and push it. It's incredibly complicated. And all of this, these plans, which are built upon, well, we'll just start of the economy again. That's not going to happen quite that way. And the problem is that most of this conversation with the word we being used so frequently is trying to make a policy top down where government, the House, the Senate will make a decision for the country leaving. The decision of tens of millions of Americans as to what's best out of it. And you are depriving yourselves of the wisdom of so many entrepreneurs, business people, teachers, all of whom are able to make competent decisions. And they're excluded from this conversation because we're doing this top down global decision making. It's painful to me to have anything like individual decision-making not even considered in the conversation?
2: Well, I appreciate you carrying the ball there. I probably had that phone call come in, but no, and and maybe I'll just um, uh, offer a couple comments there. I mean, obviously uh, that is why I so appreciate these dialogues, these phone calls that we've been doing in the problem solvers caucus, reaching out to our stakeholders and bringing back that information and having guys like Scott Gottlieb on the, uh, Call. I know we're gonna have uh, Mark Rowan uh, on our call. So we have a good mix of people from the front line providing their insight into these conversations. And it does also beg the question that I think we're wrestling with as a, as a group of members uh, who really do want this uh, process to be uh, outside the parameters of just the top four, if you would. And this is where the uh, you'll see a letter coming up from us. I think we got approval on uh, Josh as we speak. We're very close, I think, to our 75% consensus to tell um, our leadership, look, at we need to have a debate. We need to have input from both sides. We need to have some semblance of a functioning uh, legislative body in the House and uh, in particular, so that we can weigh these front uh, line inputs uh, into the debate. So uh, hopefully through that process, we'll get more of that input from folks mm-hmm. on, out there rather than just uh, DC power brokers making the decision.
13: hey so, hey, Tom. Yeah. Uh, Can I ask a question? Uh, this is uh, Peter Resnick calling. How are you, Josh? Tom, good to see you. Thanks hey, for doing hey, this. Hey, Peter. Um, there, hey, there was a question. Um, I was speaking to some people, and uh, Tom, uh, Tom, I know that you're involved in this, but some of the larger medical, uh, the uh, the teaching hospitals, particularly while Cornell, which I know Tom, you're very connected to, are seeing some uh, having some major concerns looking forward uh, financially, looking at their solvency as so many funds and resources are being uh, diverted to uh, dealing with this crisis, that a lot of the other uh, primary patient care and research uh, and other patient appointments are being canceled and a lot of funding is being dried up. So are there plans in this next round to look at that? Um, You know, again, you're connected with uh, with Dr. Pollack from Cornell, uh, but- you know, is there, is there any discussion in Congress about adding some of the support, particularly to the uh, the core areas of where the crisis is in, you know, in the city and um, the larger cities, larger metropolitan areas that are having, uh, that are hit particularly hard by the crisis?
2: So, yes. Uh, and also in the CARES Act, there has been, a, there's a specific piece that goes to academic, uh, academic institutions, higher ed. Um, to, to recognize their um, their impacts that are associated with the loss of students and their economies and things there so that that is in the initial phase three bill so that bodes well for additional relief coming in phase four and to your point about these institutions in particular um, diverting resources to uh, the crisis uh, yeah that that is this phase four package that's coming together uh, guys is uh, going to be massive. Um, if you thought phase three was small, my humble opinion, I think phase four is going to be um, much um, much more uh, significant in regards to its resources that it cobbles together in order to see where the recovery is. And that's why I think a lot of us are waiting to see exactly what is the extent of the healthcare crisis, where are we at with it, let the dust settle kind of, kind of know where the damages are. And to the communities that are large, um, you know, obviously they're going to be on the list, but I can tell you from representing a rural district of upstate Western New York. Uh, we did not get any local direct aid, for example, in this bill. We were able to advocate for the state getting reimbursed and then lo- a large population centers of 500,000 and more being directly assisted in this bill. But I can just tell you communities from across um, our district are being devastated and there's going to be a need to have local aid to not only to the bigger guys, but also the guys that are 500,000 in population and less. I mean, we got communities up here in the Finger Lakes, tourism, that's the bread and butter sales tax, uh, room tax. It's uh, all that tax base is, is wiped out and um, it's going to be devastating. So to your point, I talk to Cornell all the time and they have been great. Uh, just to give you an example of what Martha has been able to do over there, just take the veterinarian school just as a good, it makes me feel good. So I'm going to share it with you um, as we convert these uh, ventilators and anesthesia equipments over to dual use. Uh, we've got them to open up their doors to have that done on animals for the, uh, so that the, uh, the folks that are on the frontline healthcare workers can test their, train there, rather than doing it live for the first time on a human being. I mean, that is just real-time creative uh, resources that not only has Cornell done in regards to sending workers and being on the frontline, but also opening up their unique talents uh, to, uh, to have that type of effort done. They've also, Cahoga Medical over there in Tompkins County, for example, has t- testing capability that they're sharing with our entire region by us working together. So great institution, but to answer your question, uh, yes, that will be in in my opinion in phase four. You have to uh, Tom, you let me up? add something to that. This is Mark Shapiro uh, in good good, good. I'm chairman of a, of a large hospital uh, here. And I was talking to our CEO today about the financial situation She said that the reimbursement for a a COVID case is a flat $10,000 here from Medicare. And uh, many of these patients are in the hospital for two or three weeks in intensive care. There's gotta be some way to increase that uh, reimbursement or tie it to the length of time or the intensity of whether you're in intensive care or you need a ventilator. There's gotta be some way to differentiate rather than the normal course of business and to increase that reimbursement. That's one way to help deal for these hospitals. I, I yeah, sorry. I, I don't um, mean to jump, but I got to run to this next one at five, but I'll add a little bit. Yeah. You do know I, the I 20% add-on, and you do know the, yeah, Go ahead, yeah.
1: Tom.
2: I was just going to say the 20% add-on and also the accelerated Medicare payment um, that we it's put- It's right. it helps, but it's, you know, you yeah. got to repay it. So that doesn't- no. really Well, and, and this is a great example, Mark, that I think in phase four, I would be, uh, I'm, I, I, it's not in law, it's not, but part of the debate is that repayment is quantifiable and also could be waived. So as you see that phase four bucket being developed, and uh, I, I would incur, think about that as a, a way of us relieving uh, that burden on the institution. Hang, because you'd can, have a quantification okay. to go from Thanks,
8: Mike. And can I just add one thing to that, um, Mark, to yeah. your point, it's Josh. I was going right. to say that that what's so essential about figuring this payment system out and i agree with you that it's got to be more because you can't have somebody on a vent for three weeks two to three weeks which we're seeing in case after case which is just awful and have a flat fee like that especially because there's no elective surgeries going on right now or very few right unless right so you've which is where of course they're making their which where a lot of our hospitals make their money um so you've you've really they're in in very tough financial
1: situation right now a lot of our hospitals and we've got to figure this out Listen, thanks, uh, Tom and Josh. Uh, Thanks, everybody. Again, a very productive conversation and uh, your reward for this uh, is that we're going to ask you back again.
0: Uh, Thank you. uh, Take care. See you soon. Thank you, Senator. Stay healthy. Although Washington has already delivered a historic federal response to deal with coronavirus impact, you just heard from Problem Solvers Caucus co-chairs Reed and Gottheimer how much work there is still to be done. Small businesses in particular, which employ half the population, are in need of more help and better, faster access to the lending programs that were included in the CARES Act to enable them to retain their workers. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to stop the virus, save lives, and get Americans back to work. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.